Good morning. It's good to be together with believers. Yeah, enjoyed the service so far this morning. Enjoyed our Sunday school lesson and devotion, singing. Um, looking forward to what the Lord has for us also here in Ephesians. Um, you can open your Bibles or keep your Bibles there. There's only a few verses there, and we're going to not go very far in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, the title is Walk Worthy of Our Calling, Ephesians 4, 1 to 7 there. Um, and the idea of walking worthy um, gets to be a big question in my mind. Does it matter how a Christian lives? You ever thought about that? I thought about that a lot in the recent, uh, recently. I've been pondering that question quite a bit, even before we got to this part of Ephesians. I know we've covered the first three chapters of Ephesians. Um, we saw all, all the riches of, of God's grace to us, and, and there was a lot of theology in there. We're going to get into the more practical part um, today, but I want to just start in this practical part with the question, does it matter how Christians walk or how Christians live? This question has, re- has kind of been bothering me because I've heard many testimonies in the re- recently of some pretty famous people who claim to be Christians or, or give their testimony, and their testimony is a glowing testimony. Um, and then when it comes to living out that Christianity, you wonder, are they really living out Christ like they should? Are they they're saved, but are they really walking worthy of their calling? I guess... We don't need to look out there, and let's just start right here at Weavertown and ask that question for us. Here at Weavertown, are we walking worthy of the calling that God's given us? And I'd like to even look within myself. Am I walking like a Christian should walk? Um, that's a question we should be asking ourselves daily. Um, it's a question we should be thinking about as a church. Uh, we don't need to look out there and look at, get critical of other people and say, they're not really living their Christian life like they should be. Um, I'll say this, the Word of God is full of answers for how we should live our life. And I think so often I look at the Word of God and I just kind of turn the page and I hear it and I just kind of let it go. But we as Christians are asked to live worthily, uh, asked to walk worthy of our calling. I was reading about the Reformation this last week. And just a few years after the start of the Reformation, of Martin Luther posting his theses, uh, I think that was in 1517, he was struggling with a problem in his church. And he repeatedly mentioned his concern to, his concern to establish a, that the church was not living out the Word of God. And he repeatedly mentioned his, this concern to others. And he thought about establishing a true Christian church His desire was to provide for earnest Christians who would confess the gospel with their lives as well with their tongues. Does that sound like America, churches in America? In 1525, he mentioned the thought of entering the names, now listen, this is kind of interesting, of earnest Christians in a special book and have them meet separately in a separate church. He decided to give that up because he realized he probably wouldn't have enough of Christians to do that with. That was in 1525. We also know what else took place in 1525. Um, that was the start of the Anabaptist movement. While reading about the Reformation and the Anabaptists, one writer said this, the Anabaptists retained the original vision of Luther and Zwingli. 
They proceeded to organize a church composed solely of earnest Christians and actually found the people for it. They did not believe in any case that the size and the response should determine whether or not the truth of God should be applied, and they refused to compromise. They They preferred to make a radical break with history and culture, if necessary, rather than to break from what the New Testament and the Word of God said. Now, I'm not here to hold up the Anabaptists, and neither am I here to say that was our forefathers and brag about um, how the Anabaptists lived their lives and try to claim that for me. Um, But I think throughout history, true Christians always walked worthy of their calling. And I don't think anything less is asked of us today. If we are truly Christian, I think Christ is asking us to walk worthy of our calling. All true Christians throughout history believe this, and we shouldn't be any different. We don't need to go to the Anabaptists and say they were the only ones who believed that. That is a response of a true Christian. Does it matter how a Christian walks? Christians throughout history struggled with this question. And let's just go to point B. The Bible is clear on how Christians should walk. And that's the exciting thing this morning. When you read the Word of God and you get into the Word of God, it is clear we will find in the Word of God how we should walk. It's not that um, if we seek, we will find. It's in the Word of God. 1 John 2, 6 says, He that saith he abideth in him, or claims to be a Christian, ought himself to walk even as he walked. We know James 2.14. What doth it profit, my brethren, even though a man say he has faith and have not works, can faith save him? I think sometimes this verse is taken out of context to create a works-based gospel, and that's not what that verse is about. Um, it is about, but it is about us as Christians walking our faith. Jesus also was very clear about this. In case we wonder what Jesus has to say about this, I think we know these verses. By their fruit you will know them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Just so every good tree bears good fruit, and a rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So by their fruits you shall know them. And it continues on there. Um, very, very clear. We as Christians are required to have fruit. We as Christians are required to live our life in a way worthy of our calling. The devil will try to deceive us. Third thing I have here, the devil will try to deceive us in our walk. And we see this over and over. He puts us in one ditch or the other. He constantly tries to deceive us um, on what it means to walk as a Christian. Misunderstanding the relationship of faith and works comes from not understanding what the Bible teaches about salvation. And this idea of faith and works, and how does that work together, or how does that come together? Um, Ephesians did a wonderful job in the first three chapters of explaining salvation, explaining how we as Christians um, are blessed by the riches and the blessings of, of, of Christ. The Bible teaches about salvation, and that, I believe, is the reason Paul wrote the first three chapters in Ephesians. In an article I found, Why is Faith Without Works Dead? I thought clearly explained the two ditches that we often see ourselves in. He said it this way, 
there are really two errors in regards to works and faith. The first error is easy believism. And I think we see that in a lot of churches. We may even have that here at Weavertown. The teaching that as long as a person prayed a prayer or said, I believe in Jesus at some point in his life, then he is saved no matter what. This teaching sometimes is called decisional regeneration. It's dangerous, deceptive. This allows various ungodly lifestyles to be excused. A man may be unrepentant, adulterer, and say, well, I'm just a carnal Christian. But then we have the other error, which I believe is every bit as dangerous, and one we've talked about here before, and that, re- <clears throat> and that error is an attempt to make works part of what justifies us before God. The mixture of works and faith to earn salvation is totally contrary to Scripture, and I think we know that. Um, by grace are you saved through faith only. But often we try to we catch ourselves in one of those ditches. I hope all of us at Weavertown don't fall in either of those ditches, um, or heresy. By faith alone, because of what God did for us, we, we ha- are to live a life worthy of his calling. I found a story that I believe reminds us of the importance of living out our faith. I'm just going to give that story. After his Sunday message, the pastor of a church in London got on, got on a trolley Monday morning to go back to, study, to his study in downtown. He paid the fare, and the trolley driver gave him too much change. The pastor sat down, fumbled the change, and looked it over, counting it eight or ten times. You know the, re- you know the re- rationalization. It's wonderful, to have God- it's wonderful how God provides for us. He realized he was tight that week, and this was just about what he needed to break even, or at least enough for his lunch. He wrestled with himself all the way to his trolley stop that led him to his office, and finally he came to the stop. He got up and couldn't live with himself. He walked up to the trolley driver and said, Here, you gave me too much change. You made a mistake. The driver said, no, it was not a mistake. You see, I was in church last night when you spoke on honesty, and I thought I would put you to the test. We understand. Our actions become our identity as Christians. I think it's important for us to understand. Our actions become our identity as a Christian. They define not our words or stated belief, but who we really are. Our actions in life are the greatest indicator of what we believe in and who we are. So back to the question, does it matter how a Christian walks after he's saved? And I think we know that answer to that question. Yes, it does. Our works are the actions that follow out who we really are. And they're the indicator and show the world what Christ means to us. Do we really believe the first three chapters in Ephesians about God's great riches? If we do, that brings us to Ephesians chapter 4. And we, I'm going to just read that first verse again. I, therefore, a prisoner of, Paul, of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. We're called to walk worthy. So what did Paul say about how we should walk? And that's what we're going to see in that first verse there. The chapters we are in this morning, Paul pivots from his focus on doctrine to right living. He's emphasizing the believer's responsibility to live a life worthy of our calling, the one that I think all of us need to, need to think about daily. A life worthy to be called a Christian seems like a tall order. Yet what else should the Lord expect of us for what he did for us? Should the Lord be content for us to claim to be one of his followers and yet live otherwise? 
The title Christian itself means Christ-like. If we're going to call ourselves Christians, we should seek to be living a life worthy of that title. We see in verse 1, the first or the second word we come to there is therefore, and it's a transitional word um, leading from the first three chapters to the last four chapters. Um, And we find in the book of Ephesians, we're going to find 41 imperatives. Now, some of you school students or teachers know what an imperative is. Um, In English class, we were taught that that is a command. So we find 41 commands in the book of Ephesians, or how to live life, or how to do life. Um, It is interesting that out of those 41 commands, we only find one in the first three chapters. And that one is the one to remember. Um, he says, remember um, in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 11, remember you were once far off. The only command of the first three chapters. But does that mean the first three chapters are not practical and the last three and just doctrinal and maybe just for the intellect and to the smart and the people who are very educated? Sometimes we kind of get that thought because the first three chapters are hard to understand, right? Maybe a little more hard to understand. And doing all, and the last three chapters are maybe just for us who are a little more simple and easy to understand the commands of God, and that's just kind of for us. I don't think so. And I'm guessing most of you realize that's not true. Those first three chapters are the basis, they're the roots. They're actually what we should be teaching first in our homes and our families. Because when a person takes all the commands in and doesn't understand why he's doing it, doesn't under get, he never gets roots. He never gets that foundation he needs. Um, it is so important for us to understand the grace of God, understand salvation, understand what God did for us. And the first three chapters, hopefully, um, as you read and as we've got going into the first three chapters, we have a greater appreciation and understanding of God's riches because that is the basis. That's, our, that's where we need to start. We don't start with the commands. Um, I kind of like what John Piper says. If we raise, and he's talking about our children here, if we raise our children to do this, do that, do, 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 and they're not grounded in the understanding of God and his great love, we will raise them to be Christians who are self-righteous and hypocrites. That was sobering to think about. Um, We need to understand the love of Christ and his riches if we are going to be able to follow the 41 commands that he gives us in the next three chapters. Um, So important that we understand the grace of God and the riches of God. So he says, therefore, in view of all of this, and then we go to our verse there, he says, "So so in view of all this, the last three chapters, we are going to come, um, he says, "So so in the view of all this, I beseech you or I urge you to walk or to live your life Worthy of your calling. So in view of the first three chapters, Paul is saying, I urge you, people here at Weaver Town, to live a life worthy of the calling. So what was that calling? The calling is what saved us. The calling is what made us, uh, is when we became a Christian. The calling of God for us to be saved and become a part of his family. He said, in light of that, I want you to live a life worthy of that calling. I think some of us probably say, well, how do we live a life worthy of the calling of Jesus Christ? We'll talk about that in a bit. And I think Paul actually gives us some instructions um, in the next couple of verses on, on how to live that life. 
The word worthy means balancing skills. The believer who walks in a manner worthy of the calling with which he has been called is one whose daily life corresponds to his blessed position in Christ. Make sense? Colossians 1.10, I think, says it well. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. There's just the instructions for us. If you're wondering, how do I walk worthy of the life? We'll just read that verse again. That you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. I want to point out one more thing in the first phrase in verse, in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of Paul. Now, we just talked about that in the chapter before. Why is Paul coming up with this thing of being a prisoner again? So what's being worthy of the calling had to do with Paul. Why did he have to throw in this thing of a prisoner? And I don't know if I have a real good answer, but I had one commentary to give me two ideas on this. And they're kind of sobering. The first one is this. Christians, that w- this Christian walk that I live is worthy. The riches we found in chapter 3 is worthy of being in prison. It's worthy of suffering. It's worthy of doing what Paul did, like he said is worthy of being in prison. If being in prison helps me being fruitful in God's work, do we believe that ourselves? Or was that just Paul saying that? Is what Christ gave, did for us worthy of us suffering? I hope it is. I hope we understand that and believe that. But the second thought here might be even more sobering. This commentator said, if we walk like God commands us to walk in the next three chapters it might cause all of us to be in prison or to suffer. It's a little sobering, but I think that's kind of reality. When we walk like Christ asks us to walk, we will face persecution or suffering of some kind. Um, I think that may be what Paul is talking about. Well, let's get into verse uh, 1 and get into what Paul is looking at the new man here in chapter 4, verse 1. A Christian, we as Christians are to walk. If we are to walk and we are saved, we are a new, we should be new creatures. And Christians are to, first of all, walk. This word walk is found throughout Ephesians. And I have kind of used the word walk as live, but Paul likes using the word walk when he's talking about how we should live our life. Um, Interesting. We'll find, uh, if you are reading Ephesians or any part of the Bible, you're going to see this word often, especially with Paul. He uses the word walk. And what does he mean by that? The word walk is found eight times in, in Ephesians. It's one of Paul's favorite words for living or for doing the ordinary things in life. So Paul is saying, Weavertown, we're supposed to start walking. Just do the ordinary things. We start there. That's who we are as Christians. If we want to walk, if we want to live a life worthy, we just need to start walking. Um, There's five verses right here I'm just going to quickly look at. Let's look at uh, just a few times, and I think I'm just going to quote some of these. In chapter 2, verse 2, wherein in times past ye walked according to the course of the air, according to the uh, prince power of the air, according to um, the course of the world. Verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. Um, a very familiar verse. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, 
which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Um, chapter 4, verse 17, walk in love as Christ also has loved us. Um, chapter uh, 5, verse 8, walk as children of light. Chapter 5, verse 15, see that you walk circumspectly. See that you, when you're walking, you're living your life, you're walking with, with a purpose. But before we get into too many commands, let's look at what Paul says about walking worthy of our calling. Second thing we see is Christians are called. We as Christians are called. We, are not, we not only are asked to walk, but we as Christians are called. So what was that calling? What's the calling of Christ in our life? We'll talk about that in a little bit. It says we are to walk worthy of the vocation or the calling you have been called to. The calling is the goal. Our goal should be to strive to do our best and walk worthy of our calling. And called to is the act of how we live our life. We have been called. Now we need to walk worthy of that calling. Sounds a little complicated and hard to understand. But we have been called. We know as Christians we have been called. Now we need to walk worthy of that calling. Ephesians 2.1, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. God made you alive. That's rebirth, right? You have been called. Um, I love how it's uh, the illustration there. And uh, when, Jesus, uh, when Jesus resurrected Lazarus, Lazarus was dead for four days. Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out of the tomb in his grave clothes. The call of Jesus makes people come alive. Okay? So we were dead in our trespass and sin. God called us and we became alive. Being born again, not only of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The act of calling is God raising spiritual dead people to life. Christians are, um, next thing we see is Christians are urged to walk worthy of their calling. Three things in that first verse. First of all, Christians are to walk. We need to understand we are called, and then Christians are urged to walk worthy of the calling, and we're going to look at that a little bit. Um, how do we walk worthy of our calling? First of all, I want to remind us, we're never going to completely walk worthy of our calling. God did way more than we can ever give back to him. Um, but yet, in some way, God's saying, or um, God's saying, even though we, won't walk, we can never give back enough of what God gave us to earn our salvation, yet we should do our best to live a life for him. Um, almost contradictory, and yet I, 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 can make sense out, I can make sense out of that. Um, for parents, are your children ever going to do enough for you to be worthy of what you did for the, them? Probably not, but they should strive, and it makes us feel good when they do strive to do the best they can. Even though we know we can't ever give back to God what he did for us, we need to do the best we can. Paul will give many more imperatives or commands on how we should walk. If we are to ask, if I were to ask you what you think are the three most important commands, what would you say? So we're going to get into the commands now. We got 41 more. Um, but Paul starts out with three that he, I'm guessing, he thinks are the most important. And that's in the next two verses. So if I would ask you, church, and your God is asking you to walk worthy of the calling. What would be the three most important things you could do to walk worthy of your calling? Well, let's look at that in verse 2. With all lowliness and meekness, and these two kind of go together here, the lowliness and meekness, so I'm going to count that as one. With long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, that's the next one. 
And then the third one is endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do we walk worthy of that calling? And that's what we find here in verse 2 and 3. And we're going to start with lowliness and meekness. The number one thing I think Paul is saying in how we walk worthy of the calling that God's given us. Humility is an attitude of oneness, and meekness is the action that comes forth with a humble attitude. We can see these two go together. Lowliness means a mind brought low. And the NIV says humility, okay? So God is calling us. If we're going to walk worthy of our calling, we need to start with lowliness and meekness. That's the start of walking worthy of our calling. Lowliness is, is so essential as a part of walking worthy of our calling. It's the first and deepest effect. It should have the first and deepest effect of us recognizing the nature of our call. It is what I believe is the most important attitude for all Christians to have. I would say it's the flagship of all Christian virtues. So if we want to start, we start by asking God to keep us humble. Maybe even a better way is the King James says, ask God to keep me lowly. Now that sounds hard, but that is walking worthy of the calling. Is why I believe. <clears throat> there are many reasons to believe this, but I'd like to give you six reasons the Bible says lowliness is one of the most important parts of our Christian walk. And I just want to give us six things to think about when it comes to, those, to walking lowly. Our calling rescued us from a hopeless deadness. That's true. According to Ephesians 2.12, we know that's true. Um, this should bring us to a very humble spirit. We know our calling rescued us from hopeless deadness. Do we get that? Do we still realize that? We were completely dead. God resurrected us and gave us life. That should give us um, a humble heart. Number two, our calling was at the price of Christ's blood. Now, if number one doesn't make us humble, number two should. We ever get cocky or proud about how we live as a Christian, we should remember that. Say that again. Our calling was at the price of Christ's blood. Do we understand that? If we understand that, it will give us a spirit of humility. Number three, our calling required supernatural power to give us life. Nobody boasts when they realize how much power it took for us to be saved. So it wasn't anything we did. It took supernatural power. When we try to make our salvation as something we did, it keeps us proud. But when we realize that our salvation is not of my good works, but of Christ, it keeps us humble. Number four, our calling secures us for everything we need. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 for who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that, that, didst not, that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst, didst receive it, why dost thou glory or boast as if thou hadst not received it? If we recognize everything we have is a gift, it will strip, of, strip us of boasting, or strip us of pride. Number five. Our calling provides an inheritance for us. Shouldn't that make us proud? We have this great inheritance. We have what non-Christians don't have. 
we have an opportunity to go to heaven someday? 1 Corinthians 3.21 speaks to that. Therefore, let no man glory or boast in men, for all things are yours. We have everything, and that shouldn't give us any reason to boast. It should make us humble to realize everything we have has been given to us, right? We haven't worked for it. We can't work for our salvation. We haven't worked for our salvation. Everything we have has been given to us. That should keep us humble. And the last one, our calling makes clear what we are under God. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that, ye may, that he may exalt you in due time. Every day we should get on our knees and say, I am not God, I am under God. And this should bring us to humility and lowliness. So six things um, that should bring us to a spirit or an attitude of humility and lowliness. Let's look a little bit at meekness now, the act of being humble. Meekness only comes from the fruit of the Spirit. No one is naturally meek. Brothers and sisters, did you know that? So if you met a meek person today or this week, or if you meet a meek person this morning, they were not naturally meek. The Holy Spirit is working in their life, and that's why they live a life of meekness. Everything good that comes from us is from the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Lowliness or meekness is someone who is very confident in God's working in himself, but not at all confident in his own works. I think that's important. Um, one person said, meekness is broken-hearted bold, boldness, contrite courage. Meek, one person said, meekness is broken-hearted boldness, contrite courage. Galatians 6, 1 says, we see lowliness, in Galatians 6, 1, we see lowliness here in action. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you must, you who are spiritual, should restore him in How? In the spirit of meekness. Keep watch on yourself, lest ye be tempted also. Meekness is brokenhearted boldness. Um, another verse here. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently, enduring evil, correcting his, and this, correcting his opponents with meekness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth. Um, that's in the, in the SV. First Peter 3, 15, 16 says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with meekness, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Are you willing to live a life of lowliness or humility and meekness? I think, again, God has called us to that. Next one we see here in the verse is long-suffering. With all long-suffering or long-tempered or patience, we could say. Um, forbearing one another in love or bearing with each other. Now, I think these verses 2 and 3 are so much for us here at Weavertown or for maybe, I should say, for me, um, they are three very basic, simple things that I think will make a difference in any church and will make a difference here, uh, here at Weavertown. God is saying we need to be long-suffering with each other, 
long-tempered. We need to be patient. We need to be forbearing one another in love or bearing with one another. Now, if you live with me very long, you, have to learn, you will learn quickly that you have to bear with some of this, my faults. Now, I'm not saying those things to excuse them, but I think most of us here are probably quite a bit the same way. And as we do church together, we understand sometimes, um, or we should understand, that we need to bear with each other. Um, that's long-suffering that Paul is saying. If we're going to walk worthy of that calling. We need to be humble and we need to bear with one another in love. Galatians 3.13 says it where, Well, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Does that make sense? Sounds pretty practical. Sounds a little hard. But this thing of walking worthy of what Christ did for us um, is going to be practical and hard. And it is real. And it's what the Anabaptists said we should do. It's what the true Christians always have done. They've taken the word of God, and they said, we're going to do what it says. So if we're going to do what it says this morning, we need to do what it says. And do that. We need to bear with each other. 1 Corinthians 4, 12 and 13 in the ESV says, And we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Now, I don't know what you think when you read that. It doesn't sound so easy. But if we're going to walk worthy of our calling, we're going to have to do those things. We claim to be non-resistant, peace-loving people. We need to be long-suffering with each other, first of all, right here in church. If not, I think we don't have a real good foot to stand on to say we're non-resistant. 1 Peter 3.9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Okay, we're talking about calling, that you may obtain that blessing. Third thing we see here is endeavoring to keep unity. Again, sounds nice. I can preach about it. It's easy to preach about, but God is asking us to do that. Wherever we're at, whatever situation we're in, that's the start. Remember, these are the first three verses. Three, first three commands Paul gave us. We got, what is it, 40, uh, 37 more to go? But these are the first three. There should be the basic ones. It should be the ones that we are very serious about. And if you'd asked me what the first three imperatives are for living a Christian life, I probably wouldn't have started with these three because these three are a little too hard. I can't say enough for this imperative, but Paul, through Jesus Christ, is commanding us to bring unity into our church. In the previous verse, Paul offers, a, offers qualities that, when cultivated in a believer's life, will bring unity. So this thing of unity starts with humility and meekness and starts with endeavoring to... Um, it start, and starts with long-suffering, with love. Unity becomes the fruit of all the other traits. The SV gives a bit more descriptive word here in verse 2, or verse 3, says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I like that. Eager, okay? We're eager to do what? Maintain. 
So that means it's something we, sorry about that, have to keep doing. So when we have unity, next day we're going to have to keep working on it. And the next day, and the next day. It's a maintenance thing. It's something we need to maintain. It's something we need to continue to do. Now let's look at the seven things that truly unify us as Christians. I'm going to step back. Only the Holy Spirit makes unity, but we are to maintain it in eagerness by the fruit of the Spirit. Maintaining tells us it is something we constantly need to work on. That brings us to the next verse, and I'm not going to read these verses, but you see the list of ones, the list of things we should be unified under. Um, And you see that list? I'm just going to quickly say the list. Um, The point here for Jews and Gentiles to be unified, you need to be unified under something. Some people say we need to find unity, and unity means we just need to all agree with whatever you want. That's not what Paul is saying here. Not at all. He absolutely says there are seven ones. That means there's only one way. Now, how do you unify under things that are just my way or the highway? Well, Paul is very clear. He says we need to unify under these seven things, not under other things, but our unity needs to be under one body. That's the church. Okay? One spirit, the Holy Spirit. One calling, salvation. One Lord, Jesus Christ. One faith, only those who have faith in Jesus Christ. One baptism, our confession of faith and willingness to be baptized. And one God and Father, our holy God and Father who is on the throne and will someday judge all of us according to his deeds. Also the God who sent his only begotten Son to give us life. That is what Paul is saying we need to unify under. Those seven things. We as Christians need to be unified by these, I'm sorry, eight things. We need to keep our focus on these and stay unified with what Jesus did for us. So as a church, our focus needs to be on these eight things, and they should bring us together. What happens so often when we become disunified? We start focusing things outside of here, and it brings disunity. But when we focus on these eight things, we as a church can be unified and together. Then in verse 6, Paul ends this with an interesting, an interesting verse in an, in an interesting way where he talks about the Father. He adds one more verse where he's just talking about the last thing we should be unified under, and that's the Father. And I'm going to read that verse and look at it carefully. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Of all... Every elect believer from eternity has a father. Overall, our father is above every name and power. He is over all. Our daddy is sovereign. Through all, through all of us, God's wisdom is known to all of us. The rulers and authority. Remember the verse in chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, The manifold nature of God is put on display through us and his church. In you all. God is in us as Christians. We are in the dwelling place of God. So I just said those things, and you might be thinking, so what? What did I just say? It says, yeah, it sounds good. Let's go a little bit deeper on this verse. God is of all, over all, through all, and in you all. We all, first of all, long to belong, Right? At least some of us may struggle with that more than others. Struggle with belonging. Who do I belong with? What group do I belong with? 
But according to this verse, our Father, we all belong to the Father. We are all part of His family. We don't need to struggle with belonging when we understand that our Father is our family. Our Father um, is of all, and we are part of Him. For you who struggle with the desire to belong, there is from eternity no Christian who doesn't have a father, no Christian who doesn't have a family. Um, of God is of all. Second thing we see here, He is over all. Some of you, some of us, may struggle with security, feeling insecure. You may feel weak and need help. You may feel that, where is God? Our daddy is sovereign and over everything that is happening in our lives. We should be the most secure people on earth because our daddy is in control. Our father is over all. That should bring us, um, that should give us security. And all things work together for good to them that love God and to them who were called according to his purpose. God is over all. Third thing we see here is if you are longing for purpose and you want life to count, God is through all. We all can find our purpose in our Father's work. And I think sometimes we as men especially struggle with this, with this and maybe teenagers at times, but I think probably all of us to a degree. What is our purpose here on life? And remember, God is... Through all, and again, I'm going to just look at that verse there in verse um, chapter three, verse ten. If you don't, if you're struggling with having purpose in life, this is what God said, or this is what Paul is saying um, about our purpose. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Your purpose is to show God's manifold wisdom to the world. Is that a big enough purpose for us? Do you struggle with purpose? We have a Father who is through all and a Father who wants us, our purpose to count and matter. And then the last one. We have a Father who is in you all. And some of us may be wishing we had more. You don't have the nice things maybe your neighbor has. You're longing for more treasures and riches. Remember, God is in us all. And that means we are in the dwelling place of God. And someday we're going to dwell with him forever and ever. Is that enough of treasures for one person? Should be. Um, God is in us all. God is, and we all have God, uh, God's abundant treasures. That's pretty neat to see that, um, to see what God has for us. God is looking for us as Christians to understand that he has given us everything we need. And because of that, we get to um, live our life. We get to walk in a way that is worthy of our calling. Spend time in his word this week so you can understand and live out your calling. There is so much more in the word of God. If you are struggling with how do I live out the calling of God, there are so many imperatives. There are so many commands. There's so much in the word of God that will teach us how to live out what God has for us. If you're born again, washed in the blood of Christ, you have received a calling. And the Holy Spirit that lives in your life through the Word of God and through the church and through people around you 
will help you walk that calling. I'm convinced we can. I know we can walk worthy of, the, of what worthy of our calling. Remember the three, if you're struggling with what do I do tomorrow, next week, and walking worthy of my calling, just remember those three. Again, three simple imperatives or commands for us today. I'm going to read verses 2 and 3 again. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I look forward to seeing what the rest of the imperatives are in Ephesians, and I encourage us all, dig into God's Word. There's so much there in how to walk a life worthy of God's calling. Let's kneel together in prayer if you can.